Hey everybody, welcome to episode 83 of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. My name is Kieran, and I have been metal detecting now for nearly 30 years. So this week, let's talk about how to make a coil for your metal detector and why you would do this and potentially why you shouldn't. Hey everybody, before we start, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and I hope you enjoyed this episode this week. If you want to support the show, there are many options available in the links in the episode notes below. And if you want to interact with me and the show, that information's in there too. But most importantly, if you like this content, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Hey Detectorists, how has the week been? Nothing major for me this week, just a week of plodding about in the rain, driving on, did a bit of local research in the warmth of the house and tidied up a few piles of fines. So not a home run, but more of a housekeeping week for me this time. Firstly, I want to thank everybody for their reviews they have given me over the last 18 months. I really appreciate them. They have put the Metal Detecting Show as the highest rated metal detecting podcast online, which I am eternally grateful for. However, I got a review this week that was positive, but gave me pause for thought, as it prompted me to reiterate the concept of the podcast. So the review said something like this, I love the podcast, however, I won't pay for it till it's at least over 30 minutes long, as 10 minutes of content with 2-3 to three minutes of intro is not enough. Now, I could look at this and think it was negative, but all it means to me is that this person really likes the podcast and would like more, and would be willing to pay for more, which is great, but it did prompt me to refresh you all about the concept of the show. The concept is simple, a clear and concise answer to metal detecting questions that come up in the hobby. It is designed that the listeners can dip in and out when there's a question being discussed that they're interested in. When coming up with the concept, I researched and I listened to all the metal detecting podcasts that were available, and I was an avid listener of several podcasts across all the genres and knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to have a weekly podcast that rambled on for 90 minutes without direction or purpose, with very little valuable information being transferred to the listener. I'll give you an example. I listened to a homebrew beer podcast, a very famous one, probably the most famous, with the most famous homebrewers on it every week, and I noticed two things. Firstly, they recorded in one three-hour slot, where they drink beer, talk about the scene and all the techniques. Next, this three-hour slot is cut up into four 90-minute episodes, and when you listen to each of these episodes, you get about 15 minutes of actual valuable content, 30 minutes of shy-talking, all interwoven with about 40 minutes of ads, and that is not what I wanted for this podcast. Something else I had to consider when coming up with the concept was I don't have unlimited time to research, write, record, edit and market each episode. I work full time in a high responsibility role within a very large multinational, so I have potentially four to six hours a week to prep for an episode. I also don't stockpile episodes as I want to be available to comment on anything exciting that may come up real time, like major hordes or product announcements like last week's for example. I'll give you a quick overview of each week's process and what I do with those hours. So when I publish the last week's episode, I am straight away looking for a topic for the next week, which I mull and roll around in my head for a weekend during hunts or while I'm catching up on social media. 
Generally, by Monday, I have a topic picked. I then do about two to three hours research and maybe testing, because remember, I am not an expert. I need to answer these questions myself. I then spend about two hours writing up the episode. Like I said, I don't want this to be a long, rambling episode, so I script it to keep me on track while being as clear and as concise as I possibly can. It then takes about an hour to record the episode and about an hour to edit it, so about an average of six hours work per episode and well over 2,000 words wrote every week. I believe I've wrote over 200,000 words since starting the podcast. I then hit publish generally at some stage on a Friday and the process starts again. However, I am trying to do some social media push during the week so I create different artwork for every episode. I try to engage with people on social media and in general I try to market the podcast in between all the day-to-day stuff I need to do. And believe me, sometimes my best work is done on the loo. (laughs) Then there's the money side of things. The podcast costs me about $100 per month to maintain. That's subscriptions, hosting of the podcast and the website. It generates very little revenue through Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon, which I can tell you means more to me than the money itself. To think that someone likes the podcast enough to spend some of their hard-earned cash on it is very humbling to me. However, I am not in it for the money. Every cent donated goes back into the podcast, either in equipment or advertising. So you can see, if I were to produce a 45 to 90 minute episode, it would take me many more hours that would take me away from my family and my job. And to be honest, my ability to get out metal detecting. And don't forget, I love this hobby as much as you guys. And this podcast is actually secondary to that. Anyways, I hope you can see what I'm trying to do here with the podcast. So let's get on with this week's topic. So this week, I noticed this question on the forums, and I wanted to give my two cents on the topic here. And that's how to make a metal detector coil and why you should do it and why potentially you shouldn't. So in what scenarios are DIY coils a thing? Well, there are two I can find. One being the whole DIY detector community. And believe me, there is a community of people out there who love electronics and love detecting and have brought both of these hobbies together to build DIY detectors. I won't really refer to these here fully as this side of the hobby is also focused on building every aspect of the detector, the control box, etc., the whole kit and caboodle. The other being meteorite hunting or large object hunting with the goal being to only to detect metal, not ID it. So the complexity of the coil doesn't need to be high. Just metal yes, metal no. So as you know, a metal detector is essentially a radio that simply transmits electromagnetic inducing waves, which induces eddy currents in a target, which are transmitted back out of phase and the receiver coil picks this up amplifies the response and the control box does its magic converting this induced signal to a tone and an ID. We have talked about this a few times already, right? So the transmit coil and the receive coil are essentially coil inductors that need to be tuned to a specific inductance of the transmitted magnetic field. Now originally I thought you could just do a quick calculation based on a loop antenna and you will be close enough. However, you need to use what's called the Brooks Coil Calculator to calculate the inductance and length based on the size of coil you want. 
Brooks coil is generally known as a special case of the circular coil inductor of rectangular cross section that is implemented to achieve the maximum inductance with a given length of wire. The coil has a square cross section and the inner diameter is equal to twice the height or width of the coil winding. The inductance for a Brooks coil can be found from the following equation. Wait for it. L is approximately equal to 0.025491 C N squared microhenries, where C is the height and width of the coil winding in centimeters and N is the number of turns. As you can see, it isn't simple. So if you can navigate the equation, you will get the inductance of the coil. And now you need to consider the impedance or inductive reactance of the inductor or coil, which is dependent on the frequency transmitted or received. And if any of you have dabbled in car stereos or old radios, you will know that it is super important to match your speaker's impedance to the amplifier, or you risk blowing out your amp. This is essentially the same with your detector. If you happen to create the coil, you simply can't plug it in without doing some level of impedance balancing, or you risk blowing out your detector's preamplifier. You can calculate the inductive reactance XL of an inductor with XL equals 2 pi FL. Inductive reactance is measured in ohms. There are loads of equations online for both of these equations. The only way of knowing for sure the expected inductive reactance for your control box is to measure the resistance of a known good coil and match to that. But what if my detector is a multi-frequency? Well, I wouldn't be trying a DIY coil on a multi-frequency machine. I will try this on an old detector that operates on a single frequency. The risk is too great on a newer machine. So say I want to create a 2 meter coil with 100 turns of wire. I would end up with a coil with an inductance of 195.91 microhenries, which if my detector frequency is 17 kilohertz, this will give me an inductive reactance of 21 kilo ohms, which will have to be balanced to your control box by adding resistor in series or parallel, depending on the control box. Now, I don't know if you want an inductance that high, so you may have to reduce the number of turns to better balance the system. For example, having only 20 turns will result in a coil of 8.6 microhenries and a reactance of only 918 ohms, which sounds much better, so you will have to adjust accordingly. Now, I'm only talking about a single coil here, which will be better suited to a PI detector. There is a whole other rabbit hole for a double D coil or a dual coil setup as you will need to balance the coil pairing in those situations, which is normally done by twisting your received coil in a figure eight pattern, resulting in a canceling of the signals. So you can see it is complicated to do this correctly and with safety for your detector, but if you have your coil math done, we can move on. Sticking with a mono coil design, you now know the length of your coil and the diameter. So now you will need to wind it as best you can, ensuring no kinks and it is as smooth as possible. You would think that's it. No, I'm afraid not. Now you need to shield it with either shielding tape, which is a tape of metal gauze, or you could just use tinfoil. But whatever you use, you need to ensure that the overlap is at a minimum and that the two ends don't touch, leaving a little gap in the shielding with one end connected to art or common on your detector. This shield is essential as it increases the performance of the coil and protects it from outside interference. So now you have three connections, either end of the coil and the shield. 
You need to then put all this in a frame and depending on the size, the world is your oyster here. But a lot of people, especially if they're making a very large coil for hunting meteorites, so big they can essentially stand inside it with the coil slung over their shoulders, they will make it out of PVC plumbing pipe in a big square with the corner pieces glued together with PVC solvent glue. Some people cast their smaller coils in resin and attach them to the detectors like normal, but that process will require a little can-do attitude beyond the work of a weekend. So I didn't go into the control box, like I said, because there is kits online or ready-made control boxes suited to DIY coils, etc. So that may be the next step for you if you're successful in building your own coil. You have your coil, what can you do with it? Well, it's a coil, go detecting with it, test it out, did it improve on stock coil performance? However, there is only one reason to build a super large coil, and that is to find large targets while covering more ground. It makes sense. Would I recommend you try this out? Absolutely. But I wouldn't recommend you try it out on your brand new multi-frequency detector. Try it out on one of your old ones. And if you want more information, there is loads of resources and communities online. But the one I like and used most in researching this week's topic was geotech1.com. Check them out. There's loads of cool stuff there if you want to make your own coil or your own control box in the future. That's it for this week. I hope you like this episode of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. Check out our website, www.themetaldetectingshow.com for this episode's show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee. Actually, if you want to buy me a coffee, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com forward slash metal detecting. If you would like to leave me a voicemail, please do so on speakpipe.com forward slash the metal detecting show. The link will be in the show notes. If you feel like taking your appreciation to the next level, feel free to leave me a positive review on any podcast directory of your choice. If you like this content and would like more, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will chat to you all again next week. Get out there, eyes down, good luck and happy hunting. <laughs>